Hi, I'm Gabriel Carrillo from the EdTech Bytes podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. The holidays are on their way, and they can be a particularly stressful time of year if you don't have a plan. Well, have I got a solution for you. Join my friend Lynn with ConnectFlow Grow in her launch of Stress Less Holidays. Through this live Zoom webinar, Lynn will teach you how to evaluate your stress and develop a plan to reduce it. This is an abbreviated version of her 21-day Stress Less Challenge to give you the best tools in the shortest time frame. A less stress holiday is priceless. Your investment of $17 per person or $2,500 flat rate per organization is the first step towards taking control of holiday stress. Learn more about stressless holidays and join by going to my website, stephenmiletto.com sponsors. Click on the ConnectFlow Grow logo and the link will take you to where you can find out more information and sign up. Time for you to stress less during the holidays. Hey, Steve here, and my podcast, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use. My Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well, use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmiletto.com sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link to see what plans are offered and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Jim Gilbert, a career historian, writer, former university professor who has taught in the U.S. and Europe. Jim not only writes history, but also fiction. And today we're talking about his latest, Tales of Little Egypt, a fictional account of small town America between the Civil War and the Great Influenza Plague of 1918. Love the way Jim writes. Great stories. Awesome talk today. So much to learn. And thanks for listening. By the way, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmiletto.com slash reviews and rate and review the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. You're awesome. Enjoy the show. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmiletto.com sponsors. Find the NVTA logo and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. (laughs) 
are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Today I'm talking with Jim Gilbert. Over the course of his career as a historian, he published 11 history texts, one of which, Perfect Cities, was named a New York Times Notable Book of the Year in 1986. Throughout his career, he has often succumbed to a love of travel made possible by teaching at the University of Paris and Warwick University in England and with Fulbright Awards at the University of Sydney, the University of Amsterdam, Erfurt, and Tübingen Universities in Germany, and Uppsala University in Sweden, where he was given an honorary doctoral degree. Until 2020, he was the faculty Fulbright advisor at the University of Maryland. Born in Chicago, Gilbert attended Carleton College and then the University of Wisconsin, earning a doctoral degree in American intellectual and cultural history. In 1966, he was hired by the University of Maryland. He was appointed Distinguished University Professor in 1999. While American history has been his profession, literature has been his passion. And since retirement, he has written three novels and a book of short stories. He is also an amateur cellist. And a little bit about Tales of Little Egypt, which is what we're going to talk about today. Tales of Little Egypt is a fictional account of a small town, America, and the peculiar, ordinary, eccentric, sturdy, cunning, and contented characters who created it. Set in the years between the Civil War and the Great Influenza Plague of 1918, this is a pageant of imaginary people, the narratives of a score of men, women, and children whose lives illustrate the immense changes and challenges of that turbulent era. This was a period of great events and outsized personalities, splendid world's fairs attended by millions, radical new inventions, devastating wars, and violent revolutions, and leaders like Theodore Roosevelt. Today we are talking about his latest book, Tales of Little Egypt, writing, and so much more. Jim, thanks for joining me today, and say hi to everyone. Hello there. Glad to be here. So, Jim, let's start by talking about you. Uh, So you play the cello? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, badly, but yes, I play it. (laughs) What what got you started there? I mean, uh, what do you like about uh, playing it the most? Well, what got me started was that I I bought a cello at a yard sale uh, for almost nothing, and I thought, oh, my God, I've got to learn to play this. Uh, and so I did. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's a very strange instrument. It's the only instrument that you hug. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, you put your arms around it uh, when you play it, and it sits against your chest. And uh, if you hit, if it's in tune and if you hit the right note, uh, it vibrates uh, uh, through your whole body. So it's really a it's it's really an amazing instrument. Uh, nothing really quite like it. That's awesome. That's very cool. I I have a good friend who's a, a cellist, and uh, he was a former orchestra teacher for me and all that. And um, I love the sound of the instrument. It's awesome. It's just very well, cool. Well, it's a little like the human voice. It has the same uh, depth and uh, and uh, profundity of a human voice. Very nice. I love. That's awesome. Well, continue best. Of luck with uh, playing it. That's neat that you found it at a, a you said a garage sale, right? Yes. <laughs> Very nice. You saved it from the dump, the dump, uh, the dump, or where it might have ended up. So good stuff. Right. <laughs> well, I, I love it. Uh, so you've taught history in several universities. What do you like most about teaching history? Well, I, I the thing I like uh, uh, most well, that I like most about teaching was really preparing to teach, that is to say, discovering uh, what I wanted to teach and creating a narrative and a story. Uh, That was really the most uh, pleasing part of it. Uh, uh, 
I, of course, I loved the students, and I liked it when they understood something. But uh, it was also very, very self gratifying. That's awesome. That's that's very cool. They, they, uh, in, in in teaching it now, did you kind of focus on the 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 ages and the focus of you know that that era that we're getting ready to talk about in your latest book? Is that kind of a area that you liked, or did you just have other specifics that you like to focus on? I. Uh, I focused on two periods, one of them, the 1890s up to uh, and beyond a little bit beyond the uh, end of the First World War. And I also wrote uh, several books about the 1950s. Uh, And I don't think they were the same at all, but they they were both interesting to me. And I kind of switched back and forth. Very nice. I like that. That's awesome. So um, during your time uh, in the universities, uh, you traveled to to several countries, taught history at several universities in these countries. Uh, for example, University of Paris and Warwick in England. Did you have a favorite place that you taught in another country? Yes, I liked everywhere I was, uh, partly because every every place was different. And uh, there's always the, the shock of the new, which is great. Uh, I like to put myself in positions where I'm the outsider trying to learn about uh, where I am. But I think I... I think in, in, a, in a curious way, I liked uh, uh, Germany the best. It was the most, uh, the most interesting. And I, I think it's because, because the history of Germany hits you in the face when you go there. And if you're a historian, what a, what a great place to be. I mean, so much, uh, so much is just visible history. Uh, in Berlin, for example, you see uh, the Nazi past. You see the wall that used to divide East and West. And you also see the monuments to all of the great writers and thinkers and the wonderful universities. So it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, confusing, interesting, uh, paradoxical place. That's awesome. Jim, this is, this is uh, so cool. Cause that's, you know, that's, that's just awesome. You know, German history, I mean, seeing it everywhere and just being right there in the middle of it, it just gotta be, uh, just be fascinating. Plus to be teaching, in a university there has to be uh, an, like an added plus, like you said, being that outsider and uh, um, finding your way in, I guess. <laughs> right. Very, very cool. So, uh, um, so let's kind of shift to, so you're going to spend most of your time at the University of Maryland. Uh, did you have a class that you liked teaching the most while you're there? I, I liked, yes, I liked two things, uh, very different things. I, I, uh, I used to teach, uh, beginning American history, just the most rudimentary uh, narrative of American history from the beginning to the end. Uh, and I used to teach big classes and I had uh, graduate assistants. And I, I found that I found that to be really interesting. It was a kind of a performance and uh, and that was uh, that was very appealing. Um, but I also really liked teaching graduate students. Uh, which is the other end of the whole endeavor. And, uh, and that was wonderful. Uh, graduate students who, who were enthusiastic about uh, maybe joining the profession and who, had, uh, and who had some interesting ideas. And above all, they were willing to answer back. 
<laughs> which I really liked. <laughs> That's awesome. That's <laughs> I like that. That's having been a graduate student in history, uh, I, I know what you're talking about there. It's a lot different from the undergrad level when everyone's just taking notes. I mean, uh, one That's of my, right. They just sit there glum. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite favorite comments from a professor in my undergrad uh, um, was uh, when he uh, basically uh, he. He just looked out at us and he said, uh, you know, he said, all you're doing is writing exactly what I'm saying. I just said one of the most controversial things and you just wrote it down. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. Luckily, they wouldn't remember it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just I just thought it was funny. It stuck with me. When he got frustrated, when he realized that every, all we're doing is just you say it, I write. So it goes on the board. We write. We don't question. So love that. That's awesome. Uh, you know, uh, so you've written uh, several textbooks and historical works. You, know, can, you want to talk about one or two of those real quick? Sure. Um, I, um, I, I wrote, uh, I wrote, I'll, I'll give you a, a book from each uh, period that I've written in. Uh, the, the book I wrote in the 1890s that I liked the most was uh, about Chicago in 1893 during the great uh, Chicago World's Fair. And I've always, uh, I've always been uh, uh, excited by the city of Chicago. I grew up near there. And uh, Chicago was always this wonderful place, uh, huge buildings, uh, wonderful art museums, things going on that weren't going on in my small suburb. Uh, the book in the 1890s was really about uh, people, it was really a, a story of, of what happened in Chicago in 1893 and why people uh, went to the fair and what they saw and what they did and, uh, and what was happening in the city at the same time. Uh, so I, I, really, I really loved writing that book. Uh, that, was, that was great fun for me. The other book uh, that I could talk about is, uh, is in the late 1940s and early 1950s during the great uh, 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 panic about juvenile delinquency. And uh, this was really fascinating to me. I, 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 I had no idea about this, uh, but uh, the United States almost came to a standstill because we were so terrified by juvenile delinquents, whatever that was. And, uh, and I think what I discovered in that book was that, 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 the, that, that there really wasn't any juvenile delinquency. There was just... Uh, kids changing their behavior. Uh, it's the first generation of children after the Great Depression, after the glum uh, uh, kind of lockstep life of, uh, of the Depression and the war. And so after World War II, uh, kids began to do all kinds of things that uh, their parents ha had been afraid to do or hadn't done or disapproved of doing. And, uh, and everybody called that juvenile delinquency. And in fact, in fact, the juvenile delinquents of the 1950s would be seen as uh, as uh, honorable, straight, straight uh, citizens today compared to what we do now. That's funny. <laughs> so it was wonderful to write about this panic. Uh, everybody got involved in it. Churches, ladies groups, uh, women's groups, uh, the FBI, the Congress. Uh, there were hearings on it. There were movies about it. 
Uh, it was uh, it was quite wonderful. I I suppose the 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 key image, if you want to think about it, was uh, the movie Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean, uh, a kind of prototype uh, story of um, of juvenile delinquency. That's awesome. And what you're talking about now is explaining a lot to me because I'm a big fan of some of the movies of the past. And so, like, what's that one with uh, the is it the Wild Bunch or? Uh, oh yes, <laughs> Mar- Marlon Brando and the motorcycles and all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, spreading terror wherever <laughs> they went. <laughs> right. I mean, even I'm a big and primarily I'm a huge fan of comedy from the past. And so um, that explains a lot about a certain Jerry Lewis movie from <laughs> where they accused him of being a delinquent because he gets. <laughs> well, yes. He immediately saw the, the paradox of this stuff and, and, and had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> yes, that's, that's, did not realize that it went with, uh, you know, just a big fear of everything. Oh, my it's, God, it was amazing. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, cool. Well, thanks for sharing about uh, some of your books. You, you know, so now you, you're kind of, uh, you've written uh, a lot of uh, historical works and you've uh, um, shifted over to uh, some fiction. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, what inspired you to, to kind of switch to fictional novels and works? Well, uh, two things. First of all, I, I think I've, I would argue that history and, and literature are, are, are pretty close together uh, in what they do. Uh, uh, most historians, even when they deny it, uh, <laughs> and some of them do, uh, are really telling a story uh, and it and it has a plot to it. Uh, it has characters. It has all the elements of literature, um, and even sometimes one might say some of it is so close to literature because it's <clears throat> the history is made up. <laughs> but I, but I, I wouldn't argue that. <laughs> I um, I the last book I wrote uh, in history was a history of the St. Louis World's Fair of 1904, which was a great the largest World's Fair ever held in terms of area and uh, and buildings and, and so forth. And I, I got very interested in what people actually saw. And and I found that that I couldn't I couldn't get at their experience, that historians can only describe the outlines of of a character rather than the interior of a character. And I thought, you know, I'd really like to try to write something from the inside looking out rather than from the outside looking in. And so I wrote a series of short stories, and then I thought, oh, my, I really like this. This is great. (laughs) I'm getting at something I've really wanted to get at for a long time, and, uh, and I can do it through... Uh, through my imagination, uh, my imagination of what people sit, would say to each other and what they thought and what they felt. Uh, of course, it's, it's, it, it is imaginary, uh, but, uh, but I also, in, in all of my writing in, in, uh, in uh, literature, I've either based it on my own experiences, my memories, or on research that I do. So, uh, I, I, I haven't strayed all that far from history because uh, every time I write something, I do research for it. Uh, I do photographic research. I try to, to see what something looked like and imagine myself there as a, as a character in that place. 
uh, or I do research trying to find out what uh, what what was uh, going on in the environment at that time. That's excellent. The uh, and, uh, and and I love that because it shows. Um, having read uh, the book that we're going to already talk about. So let's talk about your current book, Tales of Little Egypt. Uh, this is a collection of short stories and and uh, during a time frame in U.S. history that, you know, what inspired you to to choose that time frame and just the um, to write the book this way with the, the short stories? Well, first of all, it's a period I know a lot about. And uh, and I, I I like to write about what I know about. Uh, rather than something that I have no idea about. Uh, The other thing is, um, this is is an amazing uh, historical period. It's uh, before before the 1880s and the 1890s, uh, the United States was a collection of uh, a couple of uh, larger eastern cities and mostly small towns and and, uh, people rushing rushing west and, and uh, uh, small cities springing up everywhere. But in the 1890s, the, something really dramatic happens, and that is the, the building of huge cities. Uh, the city of Chicago, for example, doubled in population every 10 years from 1880 to 1910. And by 1910, 19, uh, 1920, it was a city of 2 million people, and it had been in the uh, uh, less than a hundred years ago uh, an Indian village, and that was all there was there. Uh, so you get these uh, enormous cities springing up everywhere, and people flooding into these cities, uh, experiencing a, a kind of a new world that's defined by new inventions like the automobile, electricity, uh, the railroad, uh, and so on. But at the same time you begin to get a differential, a, a, a really dramatic differential between small-town America and big-city America. And it's a, it's a division that, that exists today. Uh, we still think of the small town as, uh, as the true America, and the big city as, oh, that's something foreign. It's full of foreigners. It's, uh, it's a strange place. It's not, it's not real. And so I thought, well, why not write about uh, about that that formative period where the small town is becoming the place where we think of as the true America? Uh, the the second thing is that this is such a wonderfully coherent period between the end of the Civil War and the great uh, influenza plague of 1918. Uh, I. Uh, I chose that ending before the pandemic struck, uh, and I wrote, in fact, wrote the book until uh, before the pandemic had had occurred. And sometimes I worry that I maybe predicted it. <laughs> I, I hope I don't have that power. <laughs> you read my brain but, right there. So. But I had, but I had uh, several relatives uh, who died uh, in the influenza plague of 1918. And so I was. Uh, I, I, I wanted to uh, 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 do homage to them by writing uh, uh, about that that period. And I'll say something else about about the book. It takes place in a really peculiar and interesting part of the United States. Uh, Little Egypt is actually a real place. 
It's the wedge of Illinois that's between the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. And uh, it's called Little Egypt because it's a river delta and the main town, um, I'm not sure it is today, but the main town in that era in, in the 1890s was, was Cairo uh, on the Mississippi River. Now, it wasn't pronounced Cairo, it was pronounced Cairo <laughs> because it's Southern Illinois <laughs> and there's a Southern accent there. So uh, it was Cairo. <laughs> it's awesome. But it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful and interesting place. It's, it's, it's got coal mines, it's got railroads, it's got farms, it's got universities, and, and it's peppered with these little towns everywhere, uh, one of which uh, is the town that I wrote about. Very cool. Very cool. That's awesome. That's, and it, and I was, I'm glad you told the story about why it's called that. As a note, I'm in Georgia and we have a town that is called uh, Cairo also spelled the same way and pronounced the, just like you just said. So, <laughs> um, I love it. Uh, just awesome. The, uh, uh, so let me, uh, read something from your book. In, in the introduction of your book, Tales of Little Egypt, you say this, the slow pace of life in the absence of anonymous urban crowds creates the impression of familiarity and intimacy among individuals. Family and community ties certainly bound its population together and to the accumulation of shared pasts. However, could you share a little about what you were explaining in this era gone, you know, the small town? I mean, you said a little bit about it already, but I love the way, and I had to stop it where I said it, however, because I just thought that was kind of a cool place to stop. <laughs> well, what I, what, I, what I really liked was to create characters, uh, all of whom all of whom have some oddity about them or some problem that they face or some quality that makes them unusual or some characteristic that sets them apart. And then I like to set them loose uh, in their own lives and then uh, in the community around them. So not only do these characters exist as separate chapters, but they all interact with each other and they know each other. And so I was really trying to get at the shape of a community based upon all characters that make it up. Uh, so it's there uh, into, a, into not really a collection of short stories, but rather the, the biography of a, uh, of, of a, of a town. That's very cool. I love, um, Hearing your explanation of that, because it also explains, I mean, a lot. I mean, we have, because uh, you have the different characters and the different uh, chapters, I guess, would be a good way of referring to it with the different people in mind and such. So I like that. That's uh, that's awesome. I, you know, one of the th one of the things that uh, you're talking about is the era and it ends in with that pandemic. Can you just share a little bit more about the pandemic? I mean, I know you lost some family members in it and uh Sure. Uh, it's, 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 a. Uh, uh, first of all, it was far more deadly than the uh, influenza plague today. Uh, many more, the casualty rate was higher than the, than World War One. Uh, so, uh, but it's connected to World War One. It begins that it, it's called the Spanish uh, flu or the Spanish influenza, uh, because, well, nobody knows exactly where it began, but it seemed to begin somewhere in Europe. 
and it began during the war when you had opposing armies, uh, millions of men moving around. And it struck first on the, uh, on the opposing armies, and then after the war was over and uh, the armistice was signed, all those people went home. And what did they do? They brought the, they brought the influenza with them. And so the, it was spread basically through young people rather than uh, the way it, it has been spread uh, currently, which is an elderly group uh, which gets it first. So it was healthy young people who, uh, who, who spread it and who got it first. So it's, it's rather different, uh, more deadly uh, in some ways. And, of course, there was no vaccine. So it just died out as uh, as people became immune uh, in the same way that uh, diseases in the Middle Ages died out because it killed half the people and uh, and the other half survived from their uh, natural immunity. Gotcha. I appreciate you explaining that because that's what I was thinking about with the uh, wondering its connection to World War One, considering all. Um, I, it's part of World War One. I. I, I consider it to be the second act of world war one gotcha and you, and you can see why i mean it's i mean this is the number yeah. of issues there so I, um you know thanks for talking about that i you know one of the things that i, I want to ask you before we go any further is i gotta ask you some writing technique stuff here so do you outline no <laughs> i don't outline <laughs> nice i uh i do i do a couple of things uh i uh I think very, very long and hard about the ending and where, where this, where this story is going to go. And, uh, and I think very hard about the characters and who they are, but I, I will confess to you that, that, uh, that the only, the only re well, sometimes I do research and I'll, and I'll write down a couple of uh, ideas about research, but I have next to me, uh, next to my computer, I have a, a sheet of paper, and on that sheet of paper, I will write a, a few ideas, and maybe I'll write some post-its and stick them on the computer. And, uh, and then at night when I'm writing, this always happens to me, and it's very, it's, it's, I don't like it. It's, it disturbs me. But right before I go to bed, I always have some idea nice. that, uh, that I've, got to, I've got to include. And so I have a, a pad next to my bed. Uh, where I write down an idea because I know darn well I'll never remember it the next morning. Uh, uh, or sometimes I'll dream about uh, a character if it's really an intense writing session. But, uh, but I don't do an outline. And, uh, and I think an outline, the problem with an outline is that it, it places a straitjacket on the character. And I like to create a character and then uh, see where it's going to go and then turn him loose or her loose and see how it, how it develops. Uh, because, uh, because I want the character to be true to herself or himself rather than to follow some kind of sequential outline that I've set up. Uh, and I think that works, that works much better. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's really cool. Cause it's, uh, you know, in a minute, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, but you, I mean, your characters are very real feeling. I mean, you, you, you as you're reading along, I mean, you easily get lost in, in that. And I think that's neat that you don't outline. So I can kind of see what you're talking about it, you know, with them feeling like real people, you know, people don't fall on outline. 
<laughs> no, they don't. Well, I have to confess, they're all pe- they're all parts of myself. I think of them as parts of myself, and I try to figure out what what uh, I would do if that was if I was that character. That's awesome. That's cool. So that's yeah, that's actually something I was going to ask you. Let me let me save that for a few minutes. We got because uh, I'm going to ask you some character stuff. Let's let's talk about uh, the imagery that you use before we go there. Um, you know, it's I love the imagery that you create, and here's an example. Young Ed was considerably shorter than his older brother, Cal, a disadvantage in a family where hand-me-down trousers and shirts had to be mended and re-sewn to fit his smaller frame. Despite his mother's agile needle and thread, his wardrobe bore evidence of a patchwork of tears and stains, as if they retained the memory of the rough play of their former owner. If Ed resented inhabiting these clothes, he never bothered to complain to anyone, and his Mother neglected to worry about her youngest son, who was not troublesome and who willingly accepted his smaller share. He even seemed content to be second son in his father's eye. This is from page 124. Can you talk about creating this imagery? I mean, I, I mean, this is a this is a lot different than historical writings, and uh, and what's cool is that uh, it feels like you might have experienced uh, the hand me downs. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm I'm trying to. Remember. I did have an older brother. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, I don't think I ever. I, I don't think I ever uh, experienced that. But, but, um, and I don't know. You know, frankly, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I have no nice. idea. But it just struck me that uh, in a in a family uh, of uh, if you're the the younger child, this is one of the things that might happen to you. Um, and and in a way, it it it, it then became a description of him. Uh, the the he becomes the secondhand child, uh, and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, uh, uh, what is what is the story about a secondhand child all about? Um, and so I use that imagery to try to uh, key the reader into the into the place where this uh, young boy was in his family and to anticipate what's in some ways what's going to happen to him. It's awesome. I mean, it just painted so many pictures. Just as a note, it reminded me of something that what my mom used to do is she'd buy jeans um, too big, you know, lengthwise, so that then she'd roll them up with the intent. Wait till you grew into it, right? Yes. And and what would happen is that when she'd undo those cuffs, the uh, you know, there's a seam there now, and you know, it's it's like, well, you grew that much, and yeah, that that went over well with friends. The other the other thing that this scenery this 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 chapter made me think of is when we get into this was, you know, it, when I'm eight to 12, that patches were a big thing. You know, it was okay for your parent to put patches on your, you know, over the holes that you put in your jeans or whatever, but not the jean patches. They made ones that were the similar material that you could put over the holes. And, you know, at that time, kids were looking for you to have, you know, a, you know, just some sort of other thing, like uh, one of the things that was popular, you'd see people put the keep on trucking guy from uh, the 70s or whatever right. on those holes. <laughs> but, you know, just you just you just got this feeling real cool right here. And even though this is way earlier than that time frame, that's what you had me thinking and making those pictures. I went, here's another one. I mean, uh, as they drove on and this from a different section of the book, by the way, for the listeners, <laughs> it's not the continuation of that one. As they drove on, a gray, unpainted farmhouse and outbuildings emerged against the flat horizon. The house was set at some distance from the barn in a large fenced area where barbed wire pinned in several cows. Closer up, the house looked untidy with a sprawling elm on the south side and low bushes under the left front window. 
An open porch up two steps held several spindly rocking chairs. The only color was a red rose bush you know, right next to the side of the porch, indicating the effort that someone made to brighten the drab property. As they approached, they could see two men sitting on the porch, one in a derby hat and work clothes, the other in denim overalls with a shotgun across his lap. This is from page 199. I mean, I feel like I'm right there and, or been there. You know, I'm not from, <laughs> from that time frame, but man, you got me sucked into this. I, is this any of this from other memories too, or just, uh, just oh, no. <laughs> no, not stuff at all. you found? <laughs> but, but I, 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 I tend to, when I write, I tend to, I, I tend to imagine, um, uh, a scene uh, in my mind, I, I try to uh, uh, think about the scene and and um, and then and then set it in motion. I, th I think what's important about writing is that uh, that the characters aren't static, uh, just sitting around or standing around, but they're in motion. And so, uh, in the way that a movie camera would move into a scene. Uh, I try to uh, I try to take the reader uh, through the through that same motion to uh, uh, to see something from far off and then to move up closer and closer and get a different view. I love that. I mean, I've, I've that seems a perfect example of what you just said because you start out away from it and you start moving closer and closer and you and I I'm sucked right into it and it helps suck me into the story because you got this great uh, scene that whether I've ever ever been there or not it's just uh, i feel like i have and i think that's cool i love that about your writing it, now you have these characters let's let's get to characters now so uh you you're talking about some of them might have a little bit of you in them um how'd you develop your characters are they based upon people you know or real people in history or are you uh well some of the characters are vaguely based on me um <laughs> I will tell you that I will tell you that there's one one place where something where I put in something that actually happened to me, and that is a, a the little boy whose uh, ears are too big, uh, my ears are too, far too big, um, and my mother actually did scotch tape them to my to the back of my head to see if they wouldn't grow in a more proper direction. <laughs> wow. So. That's the only thing that that's the I, I have to say that's the only thing that that I ever put in there that was that was actually happened to me. Uh, some of the some of the characters are vaguely based on relatives that I knew. I uh, I spent a lot of time with my parents in southern Illinois, uh, traipsing from one uh, ancient aunt or uncle to another. I never could figure out the family tree. It was all way too complicated for me. And, <laughs> and I just sat in the corner and listened to them gossip about who, who knew what and who married whom and so forth. So, so some of those, some of those people are vaguely, uh, in the, in the, um, uh, in the novel, but, but they're all they're all completely my invention, and some of them are are absolutely my invention. I I uh, I, I I didn't know and, and don't know anyone remotely like them. Uh, they just sprang to my imagination, and I thought, oh my goodness, that would be a great character uh, to write about. That's cool. Well, you you do a great job with them because you feel like they're different people, and uh, you know one of my favorites is the um, the sheriff who. Uh, 
you know, he has to take a drink or sheriff or deputy, I forget which, he has to take a drink. It's just a, just a funny moment when he goes back to take a drink before he goes on to go take a look at the, the situation that's happened. So, but I don't know why that just, it just caught my, that was one I just thought well, was I funny. Just, I, just, I just thought, you know, the sheriff, the sheriff is, is a person like, uh, like the doctor in the, in the, uh, in the novel who knows everything about everybody. And, uh, and you can go two ways. If you know everything about everybody, you can, you can become, uh, uh, a generous, wonderful, giving person, uh, uh, which in some ways the doctor is, uh, or uh, it can work at you, and you can see the underside of society, and it can and it can make you uh, cynical, or it could drive you to drink. And so I, I I thought, well, you know, that's that's really logical. It's it's actually what would happen, I think. That's wild. I think you're right. And then I think it fits well. It's like, especially in, uh, in those days in the smaller towns and none the dis- we have a lot of distractions today that I would think <laughs> that, that that person could use to take them away from it. Yeah. In those days, it, you know, you were, it, it, you knew everything about everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just crazy, it's, especially to think about it today. I mean, I, um, just how in many of the metro areas, just the little towns have all been gobbled up and uh, exist only in possible the, of a name. <laughs> um, you have to really go into other areas of the state to find the really small towns, which, you know, one of the things that uh, um, I want to make sure that I, I ask you about is, so basically, speaking of the characters, I mean, each chapter pretty much follows um, a character or two. And uh, do you have a favorite one? Is, is one of them your favorite? Yes, <laughs> I really do. Nice. Uh, uh, I, for some reason, and I don't know why this is, but I, maybe it's the story. Um, but I like the the character in the in the chapter called the heiress. Uh, it's a uh, it's a middle aged woman uh, who has uh, who lives with her uh, very um, elderly parents who have uh, kept her around to be a servant and they've never allowed her to, uh, uh, to, to blossom or to become uh, an individual or to marry. And, uh, and, uh, and I like the way she uh, not only uh, uh, survives that situation, but, um, uh, but, but, but triumphs in a kind of underhanded, uh, wonderful way that I think is so characteristic of people who have uh, who have such great limits, uh, and she uh, and and she she turns those limits into an advantage. That's awesome. That's very cool. I I like that. That's uh, and I, I appreciate you having a favorite. I like that. That's nice. <laughs> the uh, you know one of the things that uh, um, I want to kind of talk about here because we're going in and out of uh, the, the time frame. It, you know, it seems that America of late keeps re-examining its history and in some cases censoring or banning the telling of it. What do you think of this re- revisionism that's been happening? Oh, my. Well, first of all, first of all, I have to say that that history is history is about argument <laughs> uh, uh, because we don't know what happened. And, and, and we never will know what happened. And so we argue about what it means. 
and uh, and I, I'm a person, and I think any professional historian will tell you that that when we stop arguing, uh, we've stopped doing history, uh, and we need to argue about history, and that means we that we need that means that we need to talk about everything, and uh, and we can't shy away from subjects that are controversial or difficult uh, or, uh, uh, or, or uh, uh, highly political, that history thrives on argument and disagreement. And if, anybody's, if anybody ever tells you history says that, well, they're wrong because his, history historians say, but history doesn't speak. Nice. Only historians speak. And, uh, and, and, the, and, and the, the wonderful thing about history is that nothing has ever settled. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, somebody will come up with a new theory. They'll, they'll uh, find a new uh, group of documents. And, oh, my God, it's, it wasn't what we thought at all. <laughs> Everything has changed. And now we have a new way of talking about something. So... Uh, uh, if I were cynical, I would say history is very faddish, that, that we go through phases where we think, oh, this is, this is what we're going to talk about. This is the predominant narrative and so forth. And then it'll change. Uh, and that's what I love about it. Uh, it's never settled. And anybody who thinks it's settled, anybody who thinks that they know what actually happened uh, is, probably, uh, is probably not uh, a person with an open mind. That's awesome. I appreciate you talking about that because that's a, that's a, uh, you know, it is an interesting aspect. I mean, it's and so much of it's open to interpretation no matter what. And, uh, you know, it's a, uh, um, and just the, the sheer fact that you weren't there, so you don't really know. <laughs> and, uh, and even if you were there, you might not know. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very true. That's, uh, you know, it's, uh, even in your own, like in your own family documents, as you're, if you ever had, uh, you know, family members who did tell stories and those who didn't tell stories and, and, uh, you know, comparing the information and then you find the documents in your own family where you look at and you go, what the heck? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just. Well, and, memory, memory, memory doesn't play tricks on you, uh, as, as people say very often, but it, 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 it can lie. <laughs> <laughs> it's it very much so. It's just funny. Cause you know, it's, it's just like, you know, I've, I've started telling, uh, um, stories talking about things in the past and then and then i realized wait a second i've just mixed up the two different stories that that one actually happened before the other one <laughs> you know, it's like right there you go <laughs> my kids tell me i'm gonna make a great grandpa because i'm gonna be telling all <laughs> wait, let's go back you know anyway <laughs> um so you know i gotta ask do you have another novel on the way do you, you have another nonfiction book um uh, yes i do i'm i'm writing two uh, nice. Well, actually, I'm writing a lot of them. I have I have a couple of mystery stories that are that are about to be published, uh, based on uh, on a um, uh, an amateur sleuth in Puerto Vallarta, uh, Mexico, uh, uh, the American Council, a woman who's who uh, uh, because uh, Americans get murdered sometimes in Mexico has to has to become involved in the, in the uh, solution of the, of, the, of the crime. But I'm also working on two other novels completely different. One of them, one of them is uh, uh, 
uh, about Chicago in the 1890s. And it's about a, a young boy who goes to Chicago and to seek his fortune. And, uh, and it's, it's really the dark, kind of the dark side of, of the success story. And, uh, I can't really explain it uh, terribly well, but it, uh, it involves, uh, uh, it involves, uh, his work at Marshall Fields, uh, which was just at that point had, had become the great, uh, emporium of Chicago. And he becomes a, uh, a window dresser, a window designer at, uh, at, at that. And he gets involved with, uh, with some upper class, uh, Chicagoans who, um, uh, who, uh, do and don't accept him. It's a, it's a kind of a tragic story, uh, of his, uh, of his efforts. It's called, uh, it's got a funny title, a very misleading title. It's called Graceland Dreaming. Graceland is not uh, Elvis Presley's Graceland, but but in fact there is a cemetery in Chicago called Graceland, and in that in that cemetery are the monuments to the great Chicago uh, 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 businessmen who built the city: uh, Marshall Field, McCormick, uh, 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 Palmer, and they built. Uh, all of these were built in the 1890s and uh, into the first uh, 10 years of the 20th century. They built these enormous monuments. I, I've never seen a, a, a cemetery like this. It's like the Valley of the Kings. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, and, and the young boy in this novel goes to, uh, goes to Graceland and says to himself, I want to be buried there and I want to have one of these monuments. Well, of course that doesn't happen, but, so that's one, one, one. And the other, the other novel is set in Berlin. You can see these are, these are, these all relate to some of my experiences. Uh, and, and this is about, uh, a, a, a young man who goes to Berlin to study German and, uh, and falls in with, a uh, with an East German family and, uh, and, becomes involved in the twisted and uh, horrifying history of, uh, of Berlin in the, in the GDR era. So uh, it's, it's about, it, it's a little bit like a, a Henry James novel, you know, where the young girl goes off to uh, England and uh, gets involved in, uh, in a society that she can't understand. Well, this happens to the, young man, he, he goes to Berlin and, and encounters a world that he really can't understand and that in, in, in the end uh, uh, betrays him. Gotcha. Well, I'm looking forward to those coming out. And you got to keep in mind, uh, I'm here. If you'd love to talk about them when they, when they come out, please give me a holler. That'd be awesome talking with you there again. Um, uh, James, we're, we're getting ready to close here. And before we do that, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, um, where would you talk? Where would you send them? Well, I have a website, actually. It's uh, jamesgilbertauthor.com. Jamesgilbertauthor is one word, dot com. And uh, you can click on various things there to learn about me. I, I, actually, I actually have an essay there that I wrote about why I write fiction instead of history now. 
uh, that might be interesting. And I have a blog, and and uh, you can find all my books uh, listed there with the uh, with places you could buy them and so forth. Very nice. I'll make I sure. Also have a, I also have a, a Facebook uh, account and uh, and a LinkedIn, but uh, but but I think the the web the web page would be more interesting. Awesome. Uh, well, I'll make sure that's in the in the show notes. The links there, so they can uh, pull it up right away. And uh, good stuff. Well, well, Jim, I have two last questions I like to ask my guests, and the and the first one goes like this. I mean, how do you keep going when much so much is going on that you may want to quit? Well, that's that's why I keep on going. <laughs> I mean, if I if I sat down and, and thought about what was happening in the world around me, I I, I, I think I would be. Uh, I would be frozen and immobile. <laughs> so uh, I suppose I retreat into my own, uh, into, into the worlds that I create. Uh, uh, I, I try to write every morning and that, uh, that really sets my day uh, in motion. And uh, uh, while I certainly read the newspaper and, uh, and read things online, uh, I, I try, I really, I really focus on, on my writing, and that uh, that keeps me sane. I think. Very nice. I like that. That's awesome. Uh, last question: Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it, and what would you say if given the chance? Say thank you. Uh, yes, <laughs> I have a, I have a teacher, I have a teacher that in graduate school, uh, who came to. Uh, I was at the uh, University of Wisconsin. And uh, this uh, this fellow uh, stormed into town. Uh, he was very controversial. Uh, he had the, some of the most outlandish ideas I think I've ever run into. And he was a fantastic teacher. Uh, uh, and uh, and I immediately uh, uh, switched over to work with him because uh, I liked the challenge. Uh, I would say that 50% of what he said was completely hogwash and, uh, and off the wall. And the other 50% was wonderful and brilliant. And, uh, and I, I, I gradually learned to differentiate the two. <laughs> At first, I wasn't sure. I thought it was all hogwash. But then I really realized that, that this guy was really canny. And I would just say thank you. Uh, that's what, uh, that's the best thing you can say, uh, to a teacher is just a simple thank you. I love that. That is so cool. Thank you for sharing. I, I, Jim, thanks so much for talking with us today. Your book tales of, uh, of little Egypt is engaging. It makes me want to know more about the people in the times. I love it. Uh, and I just love the way uh, you write because it feels so real. Like, I like I should be able to um, you know, look at my family tree. I know these people or something. And I like that. It's cool. Hey, you know, it's been fun and I'm wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> Opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.